0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes for another installment of our Great Objections to Christianity series. And I want to say as we start out uh, this episode, uh, we've been getting some great questions, some great uh, emails Mm -hmm. and things from people. I don't know that we'll be able to do every objection but if you have an objection that really bugs you or one that you really want us to talk about, send it in. I think we've got a few open slots in this series that we could work in. So uh, as people have been doing, if you've got one, send it in. We love to hear the objections that you think are really persuasive or just ones that are difficult to answer. And if Mm -hmm. we can, we'd love to take a swipe at
1: those. Exactly. It's been useful hearing what you're hearing from your friends or from the people you talk to, because just theoretically doing objections to Christianity is interesting, but probably what are you hearing? And the ones we've chosen so far are ones that we get asked. So it's useful to hear from you.
0: So in this one, we're going to do another really popular objection and one that uh, if you've spent any time in the secular or in the religious academy, you've encountered this because it's actually popular both places. I think this this objection on contradictions in the Bible might be even more popular in certain Christian spheres than it is uh, non-Christians, because usually it's Christians talking about the Bible. I know I encountered these arguments about contradictions in the Bible, not from atheists, but from maybe what we would call more liberal theologically Christians. Right. Uh, When I was taking a course actually at Oklahoma state and that was where i discovered the work of bart ehrman and bart ehrman who is not a christian but was a christian has a very uh, prominent deconversion story has really made a living popularizing the very arguments that we're going to talk about today and so i i can remember just as a anecdote about thinking through these issues i can remember taking a course at oklahoma state in their religious studies department and we we did have a great teacher there uh, Dr. Thompson who I know some of our other listeners had Dr. Thompson he's a he's a pretty good teacher but I needed to take an independent study credit for an honors some kind of honors credit with him and so we sat down to talk about what what should we do you know what should we read what what would be good for an independent mm-hmm. study and he said what do you think is the biggest challenge to your beliefs and i hadn't thought about it that much but i i said something along the lines of well well, i think if the bible isn't true that would be a huge challenge to belief and he said well then let's uh let's deal with that and so the more we talked about it the more we kind of came to the conclusion that these errors or contradictions or not being able to believe what the bible says would be a good place to drill down so at the time this was this was a while ago at the time he assigned me to read, if not all of the uh, major books, most of the major books that Bart Ehrman had written, starting with Mm -hmm. Misquoting Jesus, which was his popular book that came out about that time. And it was my first introduction to somebody who's making arguments. Again, Bart Ehrman then is an agnostic uh, as far as his belief, but as a biblical scholar against the reliability of the Bible. And it was, Something that I encountered there, I encountered it in seminary, you encounter it in the church. This is a this is a uh, hot and divisive topic inside and outside the church. Can we trust what the Bible says? Are there just too many contradictions in the Bible to be able to trust it? So as we do in each of these episodes, I want to start out by making this argument in the strongest form. So why would anybody believe this argument? Because if nobody believes it, it's not a very good objection to Christianity. So every one of these that we're doing, people actually believe this, they can argue it. And so we want to do our due diligence to articulate this argument the best way we can, the best version of the argument.
1: Yes. In fact, I think that there it's not a coincidence that this is peaked. This question has peaked when it has, because we live in a culture that's in the midst of a a long uh, fad of deconstruction. For example, if I had said to you 30 years ago, George Washington was a noble person, I don't think anybody would have doubted that. They would have said, oh, wow, yeah, I've studied in school, some of the great things he did, what an amazing life, what a great accomplishments!" Today, that statement is would be met with a great deal of skepticism because it's like, well, we're gonna take a 21st century lens, we're gonna look at his life and we're gonna look at some things he did then, 250 years ago, that we wouldn't think is acceptable today. So it's very popular in our culture to deconstruct things. So how do you deconstruct the Bible? Well, we live in a culture that deals with precision. I mean, we have computers, we have engineering, and we have a very engineering mindset, if you will, a very precision kind of mindset. We don't need to say, I think this quote is something like this. We just pull it up on our computer and quote it. Well, that's not exactly the way things were done in the past. But if you take that mindset into the past, you can probably deconstruct anything. Well, of course, the Bible is one of the great uh, topics for this. And so you get this, you get three basic contentions. One is that the text that we have of the Bible, whether it's in Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New Testament, is not reliable. Just a matter of the words that are there are not the words that were said. The second thing is there are contradictions. One writer would say this happened, and another writer would say, well, that happened. And then finally, there are just errors, historical errors. People didn't remember correctly, or they maybe didn't—they missed that day in class and didn't know that piece of history. So you'll see attacks on those three areas to trying to deconstruct the veracity of the Bible. So we would call it textual problems, contradictions, or Errors, errors of factor history.
0: Let's jump into these briefly. Uh, again, probably each one of these could have a series of podcasts done on it. Um, and if you want to investigate both the issues here and the solutions, uh, you can do that. There's a lot of literature out there on these topics, and we're going to give some of those at the end of this. At the end of this episode, the first one, the textual variance, is kind of an interesting one. This is something that doesn't get as much pop play, probably, as the other two. But it would be along the lines of somebody like Bart Ehrman who would come along and say, look, I'm a textual critic. I look at manuscripts. We have thousands and thousands of manuscripts. None of them are exactly the same. In fact, there are so many discrepancies between the manuscripts that there are more contradictions, there are more variations in the text than there are words in the text. This is not reliable. Another version of this would be we because we have all these manuscripts and they all say slightly different things we actually don't know what the original manuscript said that's this is a different version of this argument it's not just that there are contradictions it's that the contradictions are such that we don't know what the original manuscripts actually said so i'd say those are the two top versions of this argument in terms of a textual basis uh, we we just we don't know because there are so many contradictions, what the original said, and there are so many contradictions in the manuscripts that this text is untrustworthy. The second one would be these factual uh, contradictions. So t- two, two common ones would be in Mark chapter 2, for example, in Mark two twenty six, Jesus is referring back to when David ate the showbread. And he says, when in the days of Abiathar, well, when you go back to 1 Samuel 21, that story happens when Ahimelech is the high priest, not Abiathar. Now, Ahimelech is Abiathar's dad. So you say, well, okay, this is clearly an error. Maybe Jesus, maybe Matthew, but or maybe Mark, I mean, but somebody makes an error here saying Abiathar when in fact it really was Ahimelech. Another common one would be the way that Judas dies. This is one you hear fairly frequently. So Judas, after he betrays Jesus uh, in Matthew, he goes back and tries to give the silver back, but they won't take it. So he goes out and he commits suicide. And that's why it's called a field of blood. Then in Acts chapter one, verse 18, uh, Luke tells us that he goes into this field and he falls headlong and his insides burst open and that's how he dies so the question is which one is it did he hang himself did he burst open in this field which one is it and you get this kind of argument which is these two authors are saying two different things we it doesn't really matter which one is true all we can take from that is this cannot be an inerrant book because it has contradictions in the texts
1: right and uh Of of those three, I think one of the before we dive into any particular thing, I think one of the interesting things that you brought up and bring up frequently is the idea of how you approach the text. I alluded to it when I talked about taking a 21st century morality and applying it to George Washington, for example, who lived 250 years ago or taking a 21st century morality. Uh, epistemology, what, what we think about information and so forth, and applying it to a 2,000-year-old document. And so the approach that you bring, and you talked about the idea of a hermeneutic of skepticism. What What does that phrase mean? So before we get into the,
0: as you said, before we get into the specifics, there's actually something even deeper that needs to be addressed before we start to work out the answers to these things. And that would fall under this idea of how are you approaching the texts? So there are several ways. I think our default mode in today's world of kind of deconstruction is skepticism. We go to things not giving an implicit trust to what a document or a source or a person says. Uh, This would be called in some of the more academic literature. This is called the hermeneutics of suspicion. Hermeneutics means interpretation. So we're coming with an interpretive lens and the lens that we're using is suspicion. I am suspicious that there is something here, something Mm -hmm. either contradictory, something ideological. So this is how all kinds of criticism are done in today's world. I suspect that this person is saying this, but what's actually true is they're saying that because of their position of power, or they're saying that because they are a man, or they're saying that because history is written right. by the winners. You know, whatever. Instead of dealing with what they actually say, we get behind the text with this suspicious lens and we start to question, meddle with, deconstruct what's going on there. When you come to the Bible with a hermeneutics of suspicion, you are looking for contradictions. And what this does in the way that we read is, when we see something that on the surface is, requires some working out, it's almost like a switch in our brain flips and says, oh, stop there. This doesn't look quite right. It's not immediately explainable. Therefore, it must be an error in the Bible. And what's really interesting is a lot of people read the Bible with a hermeneutic of suspicion or with skepticism but even more people just listen anecdotally to other people with a hermeneutics of suspicion. So you'll have a lot of people say, well, there's just so, so many contradictions in the Bible. Well, tell me one, tell me, tell me, give me an example. I've actually Mm -hmm. had this conversation four or five times and in a nice way, not really in a combative way, just saying, well, which one, which one bothers you the most? They can almost never tell you one of the contradictions uh, because this is the way the hermeneutics of suspicion works. I'm assuming that there are problems here. Some people really know the problems, and that's good enough for me. So I'm going to leave it at that. That's not a good way to come to things. That's actually not a good way to come to anything, to a person, to an idea. A better approach is what for a long time in the history of the church has been the way that the church has read the Bible, which is called, which is described in the phrase, faith-seeking understanding. So we start out actually giving a little bit of implicit trust to the source. And this doesn't just work with the Bible. It works great with the Bible because we do believe it's God's word that is self verifying, but you can do this with a newspaper. You can do this with whatever you want. Somebody who's telling you their story of something that happens, faith, seeking, understanding, trust, seeking to understand in the framework of, let me just come to this with an open mind Let me approach this in a way where I'm going to take what you say at face value, and then I'm going to start to investigate it. So Mm -hmm. we actually don't want the hermeneutics of suspicion on the one hand, and the hermeneutics of blind belief on the other hand, like I'm never going to question anything. What we really want is something that starts out giving the benefit of the doubt to whatever the source is or the person is, and then within that context, investigating. See, this is the difference between hermeneutics of suspicion and faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding actually can handle your doubts because it's in a secure container. Right. Skepticism or the hermeneutics of suspicion actually can't handle your faith because it's in an insecure container. It's actually outside the rules of the game to believe what it is and trust whatever it is that you're reading. Whereas if you approach with faith-seeking understanding and you come across a contradiction, you say, I think there's probably an intelligent way to understand this. I think there's a way to work this out, but I do need to look into it and find it. You can, it can, that can handle your doubts that can handle some lingering questions that are not immediately able to be worked out. That can handle things like scholarly investigation and, and, Hmm. um, inquiry into a text It allows the whole frame of human experience when you approach the text with a a bit of um, faith or a bit of optimism, a bit of trust, and then begin to work things out. So as Christians, for example, if we believe that the Bible is God's word, we should approach it with that same level of understanding and respect. This is God's word. That means I don't expect that I'm going to immediately understand it. God is higher than we are. He is infinite. He is all wise. We are sinful. We are limited. We are finite. I don't expect to understand everything, but I expect everything to be understandable, even if it takes a lot of work. And these two approaches would lead you to very different encounters with the
1: Bible. I agree. I'll give you a great example of that uh, is one of the ones that outsiders tend to look at is you have Paul in Ephesians saying you're saved by grace through faith, not by works. You have James in James two fourteen saying faith without works is dead. Um, and so you've got these two authors, and if you come at it with the you know the suspicion, you would look at it and say, well, those are just entirely opposite things, and they uh, apparently James and, and Paul don't agree with each other. Well, that's one way to look at it. And, and leaving aside context, but you know, if you read the Bible, you realize that James and Paul had met and James and Paul had spoken. And Paul says that when I told them what I was preaching, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and we were completely in agreement. And so now faith-seeking understanding says, well, wait a minute, that that. That's not my first conclusion to this. You know, they actually knew each other. They knew what each other was preaching. How can I understand this? And how can this make sense to me? And so that's that's a simple, I realize that's a very simple seeming contradiction, but it does, you, you'll you get two different places depending on the way you approach it. And if you just want to stop there and say the literal words themselves are contradictory versus if you come at it uh, and say, well, maybe they did see it differently But then you look into the evidence and you realize, no, that's very unlikely that they disagreed about the nature of salvation. So just an example, I think you're right, Cole, is how you approach it. It's the idea of suspicion versus seeking understanding is like going into your marriage saying, you know, he's probably not going to be a very good husband. And as soon as he does something wrong. That confirms it, and you might as well get a divorce. Well, there's not going to be a very good marriage there, is there? As opposed to, I think he loves me and he wants to do what's right, and this marriage is going to work out even with his flaws. So you know, we, we don't approach anything else in life that way, and I'm not sure why we approach the Bible that way.
0: It, it, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, it, it is the waters that we swim in. We swim in the, the waters of hermeneutics of suspicion. We like to treat things that way. We like to tear things down it's just not a very consistent way to live your life. Like you pointed out, you don't want to live your relationships that way. You you don't really investigate other things that way, but that does allow us then to say, well, okay, if we approach things that way, what can we do with these apparent contradictions? So it it allows you to take that next step. So I read Mark 2 26 and I read first Samuel 21 and I say, okay, there, there, there does seem to be something going on here. And uh, I start to wonder what, what could it be? And then you start to find out that there are probably a couple of different ways to explain this particular one. I think one of the compelling ones is Jesus mentions the days of Abiathar. You go back, this story happens when uh, his dad is the high priest. If you read some commentaries on this, you find out it's actually not that uncommon to mark the era by the most prominent person in that area. Right. In in uh, in this case, Abiathar, who is the high priest later, uh, and and who is there for some of David's greater exploits, is a, is the greater person, and so it would almost be like just giving the high point in a mountain range, even though there are other mountains there, there are other peaks there, and in this case, Abiathar is the highest point. Some some people also think that there's something to be said here for. Uh, the way that you name certain dynasties of high priests, there, there's right. a lot here, but you actually have to be willing to go in and say, maybe there's something here I don't already know that would explain why in the first century, Jesus says this. And a thousand years before that, when this is being written down or you know, whenever shortly after these events happen, it's being written
1: down, they would have said this about the
0: incident that's in question.
1: You know, another great example of that, Cole, is the genealogy in Matthew. And one of the apparent uh, claim contradictions is the genealogy in Matthew and Luke aren't identical. And but uh, I, I want to jump on what you were just saying. That's there's another example of that in Matthew. Matthew has fourteen generations from Adam uh, down to Abraham, Abraham to the uh, down to the exile, exile to Jesus. And so—or excuse me, David—but basically, you get this stylized genealogy. Does anybody really think there were only 14 generations? Well, as a matter of fact, there weren't just 14 generations. But the way Jewish people named genealogies was you took the most famous person, or you took the person who was most significant. And that's just a common practice. Now, if I don't know that, I look at it and go, well, that's an obvious contradiction. But that's not the way they did things then. And that's right. another example in the genealogies is there are certain Kings that are left out of the genealogy because they were terrible Kings. Uh, and, and so you just get this stylized, uh, genealogy that was very common. It's not a matter of, they didn't know they just chose not to portray the information that way. Right. There, there is a, there's an
0: embedded humility here in saying, maybe there's something in this text that isn't immediately obvious to me. Uh, again, we, we come with, uh, Uh, an implicit degree of expertise sometimes to these things that we should step back for a minute and say, you know, these people were pretty fastidious about their details that they kept about their history. I think they probably know the kings of Israel better than I do. Let me see if there's something going on here that might explain why they list them like they do in those genealogies. In the Judas example, this one I think is a bit more curious in terms of what actually happened here, I don't think there's a contradiction here in saying both of these things could have happened. He certainly could have hung himself and then fallen down into the field and his in uh, his entrails burst open. Th- those could both happen, and it made me think because we had we just had the um, 60th anniversary of JFK's death and C.S. Lewis dying uh, in the same day, which is kind of interesting. But it, it would be like if one news news reporter said president jfk shot in the head and killed and then another person said the president died in the hospital of a brain hemorrhage well both of those are actually true right. they are not contradictory but read in a certain light you might think that they were i mean if you just right. take it and say well this person said that uh, you know he was shot and died As if that happened immediately, this person said that he died in a hospital and it was from a brain hemorrhage. Well, both of those are actually true in the case of JFK's death. Uh, There may be other controversies surrounding JFK's death, but that could be (laughs) totally reconcilable in two major newspapers and we wouldn't bat an eye at it. But somehow because it's in the Bible, we approach it with the skepticism that would say, nope, there's two slightly different things here. I'm not even gonna investigate. I don't
1: see how these things could be true, so I'm not going to spend the time to try to figure it out. You know, that idea of hu- bringing a little humility to the text, and not just the Bible, but in general, is also important in another category of claims, and that is the historical errors. And there's there are many of these. But one obvious example, really famous, is it was very popular uh, in the first part and last part of the last century, to say that King David probably didn't actually exist, uh, the great famous king of uh, the Old Testament, or if he did, he was a minor chieftain that Jews later blew up into a hero figure, kind of like King Arthur. Now people would say, well, King Arthur might have actually lived, but he sure wasn't all that they made him out to be. Well, that's what people thought about King David, because there wasn't any evidence of King David ever living outside the Bible. Until at uh, Dan in northern Israel uh, a few decades ago, a piece of pottery was dug up. A stone was dug up called the Tel Dan Shiloh. That mentions David, the house of David, meaning, oh, not only was he real, he was a big deal. He was like you were saying, Cole, he's the one that you're going to name after. Like all the kings after David. They were of the House of David because he was the greatest king. And then since that time, a few other references have come up. And so a little humility, certainly in archaeology, is don't be too sure about what hasn't been dug up yet. And there are many examples like that. So I do understand there are certain things in archaeology right now you would have to say, well, yeah, I mean, that appears that there is no evidence for that. But a little humility and a little historical knowledge will make you say, but that the jury's not in on that yet. We just need to wait and see because surprisingly over and over again, the veracity of the Bible has typically been demonstrated.
0: Right. Uh, This approach idea is really powerful. I think that a lot of these contradictions can be solved with the approach that you take and then just some spade work in the text and in history. Mm -hmm. Another second idea that I think is really helpful with this objection is something that you've talked about, tensions versus contradictions. This is maybe getting
1: a little bit more specific into what is it we're really dealing with. Exactly. Uh, that's something that is not just true to the Bible, but it, faith allows tension and, and can look into contradictions and hold things in tension. And I'll give you an obvious example is, if I were outside the Christian faith, I would say, you believe that there's one God? Yes but you believe that he exists in three persons. In other words, the concept of the Trinity is an apparent contradiction. You have three gods. No way. You have one God. This is a contradiction. But in reality, it's a tension. It's something that's held in tension that we do not, I'll admit to, I do not fully understand the idea of the Trinity. I accept it. The Bible clearly teaches it. And unless the Bible itself is completely schizophrenic, has no problems teaching that God is three in one. And so in my mind, that's something that I hold in tension. I certainly don't jump to the idea that there's a contradiction there. So that's that's maybe an obvious example, but I think there are a lot of things in the Bible that are held in tension as opposed to being contradiction.
0: I think that's right. And and there's a, there's a wisdom to knowing the difference between the two. And understanding that something like the Bible is always going to have tensions in it, both based on the way that God chose to bring it about and the way that we come to it as limited human beings. Mm -hmm. As we said at the beginning of this episode, I, I think this objection operates on kind of a philosophical side, what we've been talking about, your approach, the tensions versus contradictions. And then on a factual side, okay, let's right. let's actually, with that said, dive down into what these supposed contradictions are and see if there are answers there. And that's where we don't maybe have the, all the time in the world to deal with all the contradictions, but there are resources out there to deal with all these contra- supposed contradictions. What mm-hmm. are some of your favorites?
1: Uh, resources for me? Uh, this isn't going to answer all these questions, but for example, if you read Bart Ehrman, he is going to, and in my opinion, he's going to, in with some intellectual dishonesty, he's going to say some things for their shock value. That once you dig into it, you realize it's not entirely correct. That was that was kind of a big bias. So. Bart Ehrman's project is to stack up all the things that could be made to sound bad about the Bible and tell you those. Bart Ehrman is not even slightly interested in telling you the other side of the story. I'll tell you who did a great job of that for me is Peter Williams. Uh, This is not his latest book, but before that, I interviewed him on a Wednesday night here about this book called Can We Trust the Gospels? And it's just about the Gospels, but... What he does is he looks at the Gospels and he looks at it with a very critical eye and says, what are the things about these four different accounts that would make us think they really are true? And it it will shock you when you read it, because you're not going to hear any of this from the skeptical side, shock you for how many Uh, surprising reasons there are to think these documents are indeed accurate, and they are indeed in harmony with one another. So I would say if you ever read a Bart Ehrman book or watched a History Channel documentary trying to deconstruct the Bible, do yourself a favor and at least read the things that they're not willing to tell you. And I feel like Peter Williams' book, Can We Trust the Gospels, is a great example of that. What do you think, Cole?
0: There's a book by Bill Mounts, who is a Greek scholar. He's also a a textual critic called Why I Trust the Bible. That's a great resource on this. An answer to Bart Ehrman, and I know, I I think you were going to mention a Daryl Bach book. The the one for me that's really been helpful is Dethroning Jesus, uh, which is by Daryl Bach, And Dan Wallace. And it is, I believe, a direct rejoinder to Bart Ehrman's misquoting Jesus.
1: Yeah. When it comes to uh, authority, let me just give you the sketch of the background of this. When I was uh, one of my heroes in the Greek world, uh, doing a lot of work in that area, was Bruce Metzger. And Bruce Metzger was the, the teacher of Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman is a good Greek scholar. I don't think he's always acting in that capacity, but he's a good Greek scholar. And I've read some of his work and I like that piece of it. Uh, but the preeminent textual critic uh, who's who's better known than Bart Ehrman is Dan Wallace down at uh, DTS. And so Bach and Wallace are addressing this on at least a par with the Greek knowledge that Ehrman has. And I would argue Dan Wallace is probably one of the preeminent textual critics Mm -hmm. today.
0: True. Well, I hope that people will dive into these resources and investigate some of these issues. Even a good study Bible is going to resolve some of these issues for you or a good commentary series. And uh, uh, certainly we're always open if people email in info at so we speak.com with a particular contradiction or something that they have trouble with. We're certainly uh, always happy to either flush some of this out or point to a resource to help mm-hmm. people. so it's it's one of those things if you're really willing to do the work on these, these questions can be answered. But even more than the specific questions, I think our challenge is what what lens are you bringing to the text? And often that's going to be determinative of whether or not this is a real objection or something that is completely answerable and part of all of our growth in understanding the Bible.